<laughs> so anyway, th this is how a band like the brass band, the Columbus in Columbus, Ohio evolved. Uh, our first year, probably almost everybody in there was Ohio State connected, either grad school when they went someplace else for undergrad, or they were still in undergrads. And I even took in a couple of marching band people still in the marching band, but they were outstanding seniors and uh, getting ready to student teach and they had the time to do it. So uh, anyway, just uh, I gave clinics for Yamaha for many years in brass band and uh, made a big point out of stories like this to, you know, how to get started the right way. Okay, um, I think I'm finished with that. <laughs> I took oh. I took one of your classes. You came out to, <laughs> what was it? Was it Vill Villanova? Was it Villanova? Sure was. Yeah. One more time. I remember you, you, you were talking about, <laughs> I remember you were talking about the different brass bands from different countries and we were talking about how they sounded different and uh, we were listening to them and I, I challenged myself. I wanted to try to predict wh where each of the brass bands were were from that you played, the, you know, when you played the recording and I wrote it in the margins, yep. you know, the list of what I thought it was. <laughs> and then I told you that I thought that I, I had been doing that and you took the paper and you're... <laughs> And I was right. And I was like, yes. One of my favorite, I have a uh, Slovak recording of Sousa Marches. Yeah. The National Brass Band of News of Slovakia, but they had woodwinds in there too. And uh, I, I would play this, especially for a new private student. I'd say, all right, here's the Stars and Stripes forever. Give me the nationality of the band playing this. It's obviously not American. And they'd listen and they'd, they'd start down the list of countries. And once in a while, they'd come pretty close. They'd say, well, German, no, but close. Russian, no, but close. What's in the middle? Slovakia, yes. <laughs> but it had an inflection to it. We're taught in America, and I had teachers that, loosely speaking, had connections with Sousa and Sousa era players. We were taught to play on the top part of the beat. The Slovaks play on the backside of the beat. Mm -hmm. They don't drag, but they never rush. You know, there go the Americans again. You know, just on the backside of the beat. And I would tell my euphonium student, if you came out of that band and joined our U.S. Marine Band in Washington, D.C., <laughs> they'd be on your case in a minute. Yeah. And if one of their players came over to play in Black Dyke or play in one of the European brass bands, they'd be on their case in a minute because the inflections are different. They're just di tone quality is different. Articulation is different. Vibrato mm -hmm. is different. But uh, you must yeah. be very perceptive if you, I mean, you know, an Italian band playing an Italian march, that's kind of a gimme. Yeah. Um, and a band playing the, the Florentiner, you might guess Slovak. Uh, well, uh, Kenneth Alfred march, that's probably a Brit. You know, I, re I remember going to the, to the Bridgewater Hall and they were playing when I was in, in Manchester and they were all, they were playing an all-American program. 
Oh. Um, and uh, I remember sitting there and feeling it was almost like a it was almost like a sense of like vertigo. <laughs> it was like oh. this is like this is all the music that I'm used to. Yeah, yeah. But it's totally different. <laughs> they were, they yeah. were, and you could tell that they were trying like an American style, yeah. but it was just like, it was like a, it was like an actor on in a, like a, in a movie that's, that's trying an accent and you really know that <laughs> accent. You're like, eh, yeah, they didn't right. yeah. quite get it. So it was like every now and then it was like, it's so familiar, but it's just a tiny bit off. It's still, it's still, you know, hit the spot because, because living in another country on your own, you know, all the American students, kind of, you know. Direct. I want to go up there and say, you know, over in America where these marches were written and played, this is the way they are played. But you don't. <laughs> do yeah, I, I had a similar experience like that when the Corey mm -hmm. band came here. They, we uh, combined and they did Stars and Stripes Forever with us. Oh my! The Corey band plays it just fine. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Well. They, they, you know, they, you know, we didn't have to show them how to play anything. We, not that we could. No, um, they, they probably did their homework too. <laughs> yeah. They, they, they were just fine with it. One, of the, another question that I, I wanted to ask, um, you know, with, like when there's a really successful TV sitcom, there's usually two or three offshoots of that that come out of that because they're trying to make hay with that. Would you say that the Brass Band of Columbus is is the, the original TV show and all the brass bands that formed in Columbus are kind of an offshoot of that? Yes, yes. Because um, the first offshoot <clears throat> we had was Eric Aho and his all-star brass band, which is aimed at middle school and high school players. And Eric's been in our, he's one of the charter members still playing. So that was a definite offshoot. <clears throat> and then... Some of us, there were some young adults that there wasn't room for them in the brass band, the Columbus, but they'd aged out of Eric's groups, but we're college students and some music majors and some not, and they wanted a brass band experience. So we started the OCB, Ohio Collegiate Brass, which kind of morphed into the Central Ohio Brass Band. Um, I helped start the Scioto Valley Brass and Percussion Ensemble that Chris Hoke, the current marching band director, <clears throat> has conducted for a number of years now. And so between the marching band and the brass band, the Columbus, <clears throat> we've got our foot in every one. And when Keith Wilkinson came to town, uh, when he left Cleveland and came to Columbus, uh, still employed by the Salvation Army, he started the Chapel Brass, which met and rehearsed at the Salvation Army and had a few Salvationists in it, but it was open to the outsiders and was contesting. They, they, they went to NAB a contest. So we had, a, had some of our players over there. So yeah, I think the Brass Band of Columbus was kind of the, the, home, the home plate where it all started. When was Cobb started? Uh, well, let's see here. My daughter wrote a here, Central Ohio Brass Band, 1995. Yeah, I, I still, I still, I, I looking back, um, there were times that I could have joined a brass band growing up. There were several times that I was asked or approached and I, I, I didn't know what it was. And I was kind of, I remember Keith Wilkinson approached me to join his brass band when I was in high school. Um, 
he was he was scouting it at solo and ensemble <laughs> we all did <laughs> yeah yeah and uh so he asked me and i was i was between wanting to do journalism and music and i it was quite a drive um and i was already playing in the kent the kent stark uh wind ensemble and i was like ah this is a lot um so I, I said no at that point. And the other time that I said no, when I probably should have said yes in hindsight was it, when I was at Capitol and they asked me if I wanted to do Cobb. Oh, and yeah. I said, I said no, because I was a double major and you were talking about how you wanted to get out with your degree um, in a short amount of time. I was doing a double, I was doing a double major with music ed and euphonium. And because since I was doing euphonium, I was required to play trombone as well. Um, so I was trying to do a double, a double major with two instruments, uh, and, and I don't know, Aaron and Tony, uh, capital is a private school and, uh, I was getting significant, uh, financial aid. Mm-hmm. Um, and that financial aid <laughs> was up in four years. So it was like, watch me go through this degree. <laughs> uh, I will be done in four years, you know? So I just thought, I just, I, I don't know if I can fit this into the schedule. So I said no at that point as well. So I didn't get into brass banding until I moved to the UK. I had never played in oh, a true brass man. band. Boy, you started at the top and worked your way down. Yeah, her <laughs> first brass band experience was playing with Black Dyke. Well, I was just a sub, but that was, but that was the first time Please. I played in a brass band. I, <laughs> that was, that was my baptism by fire. Uh I, I, so that was, but you know, in terms of Aaron always talks about how, how you, you play in a brass band and you, you inevitably get hooked. Well, you know, um, I was, you know, there was no hope for me <laughs> None whatsoever. <laughs> playing as a sub for black dyke is, as my first brass band experience. I was like, okay, well, where can I find more of this? <laughs> Nowhere. <laughs> when did, when did Columbus start competing at the, at the NAVA competitions? We came in in NABA 3, and I visited in NABA 2, which was in Westchester, Pennsylvania. John Woods, who was my associate marching band director and took over after I left, uh, he and I drove. He had grown up in that area, in Delaware and so on, so he knew where we were going. And uh, I met Perry Watson, and I said, Mr. Watson, I've already been engaged to judge the New Zealand nationals. I need to sit in with the judges here at NABA. Can I do that? Uh, Roy Newsom and Bill Himes were two of the judges. So I spent most of the day with Roy. And then I went over and sat with Bill for a while. And I would just sit there and listen to what they said into the tape recorder, look over their shoulder, what they wrote. And in between bands, if there was a little bit of downtime, I would have a question of, uh, you know, did, did you like the tone quality of this band? Yes or no? And Roy would usually say things like, too bright, too bright, too American. <laughs> and Bill wouldn't. <laughs> but, but by the time that day or that whole weekend was over, uh, I was hooked. I mean, I had a brass band already, but uh, in terms of con- con- uh, competition and so on. So, um, we, we hit the ground then, then the third year was in, in, in Indianapolis. So we went and we won the, the top section. Uh, John Lambert's Gramercy Brass won it the first two years. 
but did not compete the third year. So it was just a wide open section. And we let off with Ruslan and Ludmilla and I think we won it on the first piece. <laughs> uh, but anyway, once you win a contest, because I had people in the brass band of Columbus that were not contest freaks. I mean, I said, no, I came here to play concerts and maybe make some recordings and help some other bands get started. Well, it's contests. Oh, did that in high school, and, you know, blah, blah, blah. But once you win, then you're the defending champion. And that's bad sport not to go and defend and let somebody have a chance to knock you off. Did anybody watch Jeopardy last night? After no. 30 some shows or more, yeah, yeah. he lost. Yeah. Oh, really? I did read about that in the paper. Yeah, I'll bet it's in the paper. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, so we, we played the winning game as long as we could. And because I had all college trained musicians, semi-professional, and these are the people that are subbing in the Columbus Symphony, playing the professional brass quintet gigs around town, sitting in various, you know, uh, I, I, I put a market on that. I mean, I just took them. <laughs> if they were Ohio State, fine. If they weren't, that was okay, too. But uh, I, I went after them, I recruited. So uh, right now, the Brass Band of Columbus does not compete. They probably never will again. And if they did, they would not be top section. Uh, you know, it, it just, we just happened to hit it at the right time. That brings up an interesting philosophical um, question about, about competition is, is you know, does competition actually help your band be a better band? In the earlier years, definitely, yes, definitely. I mean, we got comments. We had judges like Steve Bullen and Bill Himes and Jim Kerno and Norm Goffin from New Zealand came over for one. And uh, I think Phil McCann did one. We had people from Roy Newsom, uh, Bram Gregson from Canada. Uh, we had named judges and they were very, I thought, very fair. Sometimes uh, Keith Wilkinson had a saying that many a contest is ruined by the results. <laughs> and he's right about that. I mean, you, you can say, well, we had an off day or I thought we really played well and got some nice comments from the judges, but they liked another band better. Gave them more points, you know. So right. anyway, um, we needed to be pushed and we were not being pushed by the other bands in NABA until Colin Holman came along. First with the uh, Chicago band and then later with the Illinois band. One year in competition, we tied. A tie. We tied. Really? The overall score was tied. So then oh. you go to the, the test piece. We tied on the test piece. Oh, really? <laughs> And Colin and I are good friends. I mean, we're rivals, but we're good friends. <laughs> say, Colin, you know, we could go backstage and flip a coin here or something, you know, and, or we'll let you win this year. You let us win next year. <laughs> they, they did the right thing. They made us co-champions and we were very happy with that. But uh, those things, you, you need to have your, your system in place. Mm -hmm. And we had three judges, but it just came out of time. That's that's the number the the astronomical rarity of that. You know, I think I think there's a third tiebreaker rule now, but probably because of that. Yeah, I'm sure there is, but I don't know what it is. It's it's um it's 
um, score, then highest test piece score. Uh, if that's tied, then it's the highest test piece score with two of the three judges. Oh, oh, okay. Uh, so so they eliminate you. one of the judges and hopefully that does it. But let me give you the, the New Zealand take on this whole system. Okay. Up until a year or two before I went there, one judge per category. No really? second judge, no third judge. One judge makes the decision. All right. Um, when I got there, I thought I would be on a panel of three. I knew Norm Goffin was judging something. <laughs> and I was a little bit shocked when I went to my first judging and I'm all alone in, in the box. Just hmm. me and a uh, guide, I guess. Boy, talk, about, talk about, talk about anyway, knowing who to blame. Yeah, well, right. yeah, right. Got to run to your car. Uh, <laughs> I get to the end of this. I asked my my guide there in the booth. I said, "Didn't you normally do three judges a panel?" He said, "Oh yes, we tried that for a year or two. And I said, and "What happened?" He said, "Well, one judge votes one way, another judge votes another way, and the third one casts the deciding vote." So why have three when one person's going to make the final decision? Wow, that is that is such interesting and backward thinking logic. Yeah, right. <laughs> I, was, you were, I was thinking, how do I say this diplomatically? And you just went right to it. New Zealand, <laughs> like, like what? New Zealand at that time, and perhaps these days was ten or twenty years behind the rest of the world. Um, when I was there in New Zealand. I was not a popular American because American nuclear powered ships that were active in that area, Australia, New Zealand, Vietnam, you know, were not welcomed in New Zealand ports. They couldn't go. Okay. So that made me the ugly American. You know, I'm, I'm all for nuclear power and atom bombs and they're, they're not going <laughs> to and, and New Zealand, I think, by listening to the COVID things, they don't have the COVID. Well, they they, they shut down. They well, shut they, down. They, they locked down fast. And they can do that. Yeah. You know, they can do, they're self-sufficient down there. They don't need the rest of the world. Yeah, they did really well. We, we've been doing a lot of research in the last couple of years and <laughs> looking into adjudication a lot and, and always trying to improve that. And the research actually says that five judges is the most effective way. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Really? So, yeah. You pay five, then you know. I mean, it's, that's... it's a it's an economic thing now. Do you want to do the right thing, or can you afford to do what's the best way, the best number of, of people to get onto a panel? You know, I you brought up Ron Holtz's name. I would be very comfortable playing a contest with Ron Holtz as the only judge. I it's so would I. Yeah, I would say the same for Bill Himes. And Steve and Jim Kerno, you know, I, I, I trust these people. They know us. Um, actually, Tony, let's see, I was president of NABA from 80, 89 to 93 or something like that. I did, did four, two two-year terms. But we, um, we opened up the adjudication. No, no boxing, no uh, covers. They yeah. can see the band. Because we thought Americans, that's the way we do it. You see the band, 
Yeah. Uh, I know from my public school that the minute the Grove City Band walks on the stage with Jim Swearingen or whoever followed them conducting, it's right. a one unless they blow it. I mean, right. unless they just fall apart. I mean, they're magnificent. And then somebody else comes on with a small country band and you don't know the conductor, you don't know what school he came from. And, mm-hmm. uh, and you see two French horns and one tuba and no double reeds. And immediately you're judging them before they play the first note. Right. Mm-hmm. And see them. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so we did that, but then they, they voted later on to go back to at least behind the screen. So you... I- that's really interesting. How did how did the people feel like the it affected the results during the unboxed years? Did they feel like, well, it didn't really help at all or it really did help? You know, it wasn't a negative thing as much as an experiment that we did it and we said, oh, did that make any difference? I don't really think so. Let's, and of course, if we brought a British judge over, why they were very unhappy. <laughs> what do you yeah. mean you can see the band? But they wouldn't know any of the. When I judged at New Zealand, I didn't know any band. I didn't know any conductor. Right. They didn't need to put me in a box. Yeah, I didn't know any right. of these they things. They didn't need to, but they did. I mean, a lot of. I think. I think there. There are several judges uh, at NABA, at least with the with the size of our sections. I'm. I'm sure that that you know. I can, I can hear, at least I can hear with the championship section bands. Oh, I know that's, that's Lee. I can hear him on solo. You, yeah. <laughs> you know, I can, I can hear, I can hear these solo spots and I know, yeah. I know what they sound like. So whether I'm in a booth or, or not, it's kind of, it's like, you know, um, when, when we were doing auditions for my, for the euphoniums at Rowan, um, there are only five of them. <laughs> And so it's like, I'm behind the screen, but Felipe, that I'm pretty yeah. sure that's you. <laughs> yeah, you, you think, you, think you know, but you don't always know. I would, somebody was telling right. me a story about a judge in, in England who was judging and every band that came on, he was like, that's Black Dyke. And the next band, no, that's definitely Black Dyke. Black Dyke wasn't even at the contest. Oh. They weren't even there. <laughs> you know, like, you know, it's, it's unethical for a judge, number one, to even be trying to figure out who's on the stage. You know, mm-hmm. who it is is absolutely irrelevant. You There's know, a British and an American story about seeing and not seeing. Uh, Laura Leinberger was my prized euphonium student at Ohio State, and she got in the army band on uh-huh. largely ceremonial, but subbed in the regular band and subbed in the uh, well, the trumpet group on bass trumpet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the Herald Trumpets. Harold Trumpets, yeah. When Laura was auditioning and she hit all four of the service bands in D.C., she was ready to go out on stage behind a curtain to play. And one of the female guides said, take your shoes off. And she said, why? She says, well, if you go clip clop across the stage, everybody out there in the judging panel is going to know it's a woman. And that's yeah. not going to be a vote in your favor. So yeah. there's there's one. You know, that's interesting. I've been I've been told that for auditions to wear the British British end of this. Yeah, was a story, and you probably heard it when you were over there, Amy. That one of the contests, as one of the bands was setting up, a music stand fell over, crash. Every band after that knocked over a music stand. (laughs) Yeah, I I heard that story. Just in case that was a signal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Oh yeah. 
Wow. <laughs> yeah. But I, so, as I was, I started saying, I, I've definitely heard like, do not like, if you're in a, if you're in a blind audition situation, where, wear silent shoes because you come right. in with those heels and click, 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 they, click. They know, they know. They're going to know. They're going to know. I, I can't recall ever taking an, an audition for an orchestra where there wasn't carpet laid down to walk on. Oh, that's interesting. No. Yeah. Okay. In the right. Well, I mean, also, I mean, there's, there's that. Well, I, it's not always like an, an orchestral audition. Sometimes it's it was blind aud auditions for chairs, concerto uh, competition. you know, concerto competition, stuff like that. And I mean, um, and then also, you know, you have the you have the stuff on the stage where I used to wear just plain old heels like for NABA. But with the with the development of of people moving around, you know, sometimes sometimes in Atlantic to make a, a solo stand out more, um, without us, without us having to work harder, we'd move up to the front of the stage since, yeah. since they're in the judge's box. But if you're trying to create that ambiance in that soft section, you hear click, 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 <laughs> going up to the front of the stage, stage. is like, eh, <laughs> maybe that, maybe that's not a good idea. <laughs> yeah. Black Dyke does that all the time. You know, they, they move their soloists all over the place. I think Brickhouse yeah. has gone into doing that as well. Well, we tried it and it was just like, we can, we can make textures change by having, having the soloists move out front and you can have that sound of not, of, of um, less effort. You know, you can have someone play really quietly and have it project in an entirely different way, especially with euphonium, with the, with the, with the weird direction of the the bell, you can have it project in an entirely different way. If you go up to the front of the stage, it really like envelops the audience as opposed to back in the band where you're essentially facing backwards and you have to go up to the top and then bounce back out a lot of the time. So it, you can change, you can play with textures and stuff. And we would do like, if there's a duet, you know, the, the, um, those complicated like octave duets with the solo cornet and solo youth instead of fighting to try to get you know to get things together from the opposite side of the band we just get up <laughs> and go next to each other and instantly it becomes chamber music between the two of you and the interactions can be yeah. much more organic it's great i i'm a fan it, of it yeah the judges will never know and it, yeah. it works so much too for the the entertainment purposes of the of of what's going on too because like yeah. for a crowd you know i mean and you see it you know you see people do enter the galaxies and they'll put the cornets winging the band and stuff like mm -hmm. that um and it changes the perspective for the audience a little bit as well so i mean and you know we're so it, the, the brass band is so homogenous in terms of its sound anyway that if you can do anything to kind of adjust or mess with that and it's helpful or you you it feels like it's helpful why not it's fun anyway i've, I've thought about this a lot and maybe paul you'll have some perspective on this is that you know with the exception of maybe grimethorpe um who has a different than standard setup for brass band and um some gimmicky you know composers say hey set your band up this way for this piece it was composed in that minute. but in 180 years of of brass banding everybody seems to end up sitting the same way and setting up their band the same way what, what do you have to say about that paul um i i i like tradition 
but not every band is as good as Black Dyke. So if we sit like Black Dyke sits, does that make us better? I don't know. Um, when I was student teaching uh, at a rural high school south, south of Columbus, um, the director had his four French horns in the front row. Okay, four single F horns. This is back in the 50s. Before he would start a piece, he'd say, let me hear the fourth horn note, the third horn, the second, the first. Let me hear the chord. Okay, band, one, two, ready, play. He had four basically beginning students for horn players. And he wanted to hear everything that came out of their horn and actually help them get started on the right pitch. So obviously you put your horns in the front row. Obviously, uh, you know, don't don't stick them in the back of the band. Uh, who knows? You know, and I I think I can't remember where if I was guest conducting a band or something, but there there was a problem in the horn section, and one of the horn players had the wrong crook in it, but was just playing away anyway, and was pretty oblivious to the fact that everything was a step off. <laughs> you know, I mean, so. Um, we, we experimented some in the brass band of Columbus, but we always went into the, uh, the directional band part that trump <laughs> trumpets, no, cornets and trombones blow into each other. And then you put the mellow brass in the middle. I don't know whether that's, um, uh, let me tell you the Philip Spark quickie here, uh, the Navigation in March, which is just one of the classics I, if I ever, get invited to guest conduct anymore. And I don't think I will. <laughs> um, it's just a, a classic in your face march. Um, I had the trombones and the cornets swing out at the end. I mean, they stayed right in their seats, but they just aimed at the audience. And Philip was in Columbus, back Capitol hosted him, Amy. Were you there when he was there? Um. I'm trying to think. Barry Kopetz was the director at that time. Right. I was there when Barry Kopetz was the conductor. I, I remember I was there for, what was it? Robert W. Smith, Robert W. Smith was there when I was a, a senior in high school. I don't know if. Well, anyway. Philip, I don't think I was there. We, we were at Hilliard High School and we had Philip for one night of rehearsal and then the next night of a public concert. And we guest conductors did him from the Highlands. We did the whole shebang, but uh, we played the navigation march earlier in the program and I conducted it and we had the trombones and trumpets stick out at the end. And you know what the first thing he said was, did I write that? <laughs> <laughs> said, no, Philip, we're just helping him out a little bit. <laughs> so, I mean, you can, Brass instruments are directional, and I fought this in the marching band because Ohio Stadium has as many seats uh, at the back of the band as it does the press box side. And then there's all those thousands in the end zones. And if you try to face the band in four different directions at once, which we would occasionally for a standstill concert formation, it's still you're only hearing a fourth of the band that way. So we played at the home side, we played at the press box and uh, people sitting on the other seats can look at the scoreboard because they're seeing the formations upside down and they can see what the, yeah, yeah. But we never solved the problem. You, there's only one way to solve the problem. You have to have an 800 piece marching band. Right, yeah. <laughs> and then you can play for all four sides at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> and, the, and there aren't any of those. 
There's a high school band in Texas that has 650. Oh, is that right? Oh, geez. Yeah, Allen, Texas. You got to check it out, Allen, Texas. It's insane how much field coverage they have. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Oh, yeah. At so, that point, at that point, you're like, how do you even make formations? Because everyone just moves a little bit to the left. Yeah, everyone you, you moves do, a little to the right. You do and the third or negative. You fill the space. And then when there isn't space, that's the formation. That's the formation. <laughs> that's oh, the, my gosh. Yeah. But it's a very good band. It's a very good band. You know, so. Right. You know, well, you, that you many kids want to be in it. You yeah, know, talk, talk about like, you know, your band rolls into a competition and they've got 35 buses. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh it's like it's like an army <laughs> my my son is a college orchestra director now at ball state university and that's he's a violinist but he played trumpet in the marching band and the jazz band and the concert band and um, got his got his money's worth at ohio state that's for sure but uh he he had a, a small school uh, amy baltimore ohio liberty union and mm -hmm. Um, he was a band director there for two years and then went to grad school and majored in orchestral conducting. But uh, he, he took his band to a, a marching band contest. And uh, as the buses are pulling in, they, um, the, the guy that met him at the parking lot said, where's your equipment truck? <laughs> and he says, it's all on the buses. <laughs> making his way to the field. He said, well, don't you have pit percussion? Where, where's your, you know, your, your cart? Yeah, it's all well, like Ohio State. We don't have pit anything. We have horn players that march and one guy in a red suit that twirls his baton and blows his whistle. That's old school. That's his. <laughs> so um, yeah. I wanted to pre preach to the, the choir here for just a minute on a, a few insights uh, that came, some from marching band, some from symphony orchestras. Um, I had an opportunity when I was in teaching public school in Pickerington. Uh, the Columbus Symphony called and said, we're doing the Berlioz Fantastic Symphony. We'd like you to come on your euphonium and play the high tuba part. And I say, yes. Now I played in the university symphony at Ohio State, but it was all on trombone. So here's, here's the first time, tenor tuba, whatever it is, you know. So I went in there and I had a a bad instrument and Jules Duga was the tuba player and we we're supposed to be playing octaves most of the time and out of tune and Glenn Harriman was the principal trombone and a fine euphonium player in his day and he says I've got a Besson compensator at home that I'm not using I'll bring that to the next rehearsal play that and so play that and everything blossomed but in the 50s we hadn't at Ohio State come to the compensating euphonium yet. Mm -hmm. Sorry, but we just didn't. We had baritones, bell fronts, you know. So anyway, that that was my introduction to the the true euphonium, and then uh, Glenn let me keep that for a couple of months. I was preparing a tape for Eastman at that time, and I said, Glenn, can I hold on till I finish the tape? And he says, Yeah, I'm not using it. I'm playing trombone in the orchestra, and so I was able to use that. So uh, equipment makes a difference. Mm -hmm. vibrato if you study with a trombone player what vibrato is he going to teach you slide vibrato which on the euphonium becomes hand vibrato like the old trumpets used to try a hand vibrato on the euphonium and you can shake that instrument practically and the tone still comes out flat as a board I mean, you just can't do it so i was taught hand vibrato for a couple of years 
when it came time for me to do my graduating recital at Ohio State, I was put off to a graduate student because Jack Evans didn't give two hoots for recitals. He wanted to get you as freshman and mold you and give you the fundamentals. My best year with him was my freshman year. I mean, light years of progress. But the further along you got, he just kind of lost interest. So he sends me to a trumpet grad assistant, music ed grad assistant who's a trumpet player. He listens to me play. And the first thing he says is, your vibrato sucks. <laughs> I mean, he, was, he was that kind, you know, things were good or they were awful bad. And I said, well, this is what I'm taught, you know? And he said, well, we're going to make a few visits to studios here and find out how the other people do vibrato because on trumpet, I use the hand vibrato and that works fine for me. So we went to a voice studio and we asked the teacher there, how do you teach vibrato? He said, well, I sing with my students and for my students and tell them to copy it. No hows, just do it. You know, here it is. You, you figure it out, okay? Uh, we went to the oboe studio. Oboists generally use what we call a diaphragm or wind vibrato. Mm -hmm. There is only one <clears throat> euphonium player that I have met in all my years that uses that vibrato that I would say is as good a euphonium player as anybody. And that's Henry Charles Smith. Now in a master class once I heard Henry sing. He is a magnificent tenor. He should have been in the Met Opera. I mean, he was that good. So he's taking his vocal vibrato and putting it over on the trombone and he was a fine, accomplished euphonium player as well. Yeah. Okay, now you see where we're going with this. We finally got to the saxophone studio. Now, I watched the saxophone players in concert band. I knew this, you know, chewing type motion. And we had wonderful saxophone players at Ohio State. And so we talked to Burdette Green, who was my freshman theory teacher back when, and said, Burdette, do you think this is going to work on the euphonium? Well, I don't know why not, you know. So within a week, I had a very usable lip and jaw vibrato on euphonium. Um, it just took a week. And when the concert band and warm up on long tones, I'd practice my vibrato. Wah, 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 Softly, of course. But, you know, within the week, I had it. So that's the mainstream vibrato. Everybody knew it but me. You know, I mean, I got met Brian Bowman when he was in the Navy band. We talked vibrato. Met Leonard Falcone when we were both marching band directors and uh, he and I one time at Ohio Stadium, it was kind of raining and we went under the stands, just the two of us, and we're talking euphonium literature and euphonium vibrato. And I hear a lot of crowd noise as Leonard, I think Ohio State just scored a touchdown, you know, then I'd hear a big groan as a Leonard, I think Michigan State just scored a touchdown. Well, <laughs> he, had, he had Bill Moffat running his band and I was Charlie Spawn's assistant, so he didn't need me in the stands, you know, so we're <laughs> running there talking euphonium. <laughs> but I got to know these people. The Midwest Clinic was a great place to find fellow euphonium players and just talk shop. So it gets back to, I've got three college degrees, but none of my major teachers was a euphonium player. Yeah, that's, that's, that's fascinating. Bad. That's, that's bad. 
You know, that, that hurts. They were all good people, all good teachers, all good musicians. They just didn't happen to play the euphonium. Yeah, probably very common for your generation of euphonium players, too. Well, I'm still this generation, too. <laughs> it's, it's, you know? it's a little bit easier to find a euphonium teacher now than it used to be. <laughs> yeah. Right. But I mean, at, at colleges, there's still there's still trombone euphonium teachers or tuba euphonium, or in small colleges, you have you have a low brass person. Right, but you know, but in comparison to then, um, you know, you know, Indiana, North Texas, you know, how many universities actually have a full time euphonium professor now? Which was the the you know there are actually I think that's about it. <laughs> Well, you yeah. nailed them. You got them. Also, but they also them. have adjunct. Though. There's plenty that have adjunct euphonium professors yeah. too. Well, let me you know, University of Maryland right. does. George Mason does. Shenandoah Conservatory. Um, you have you know people who are actual euphonium players who are the tuba professor now because they double on euphonium and tuba, but they are originally two euphonium players. So the, yeah. the access is definitely grown. It's not it's not well, the same world we used to have. It's better it, better than what it was. Let me answer first part of your question, um, if, if I had a student who said he wanted to be a professional euphonium player, of course, in the United States of America, if you're looking at the top, you're looking at the four service bands in DC and the Coast Guard band is very good as well. And the Academy bands are good. You know, there, there are opportunities there. But I say, if you think you're going to find a college job teaching euphonium full time, Sorry, Buster, that's a halftime gig at the most. Mm -hmm. And my years at Ohio State, I was teaching between 10, 12, 13 euphonium majors at a time. And I had more than anybody else had because yeah. we were a music education school. And if they were in music ed and euphonium was their major instrument and they played it decently well, they were in. But my, my backup was marching band first. And then brass pedagogy, which was always taught by a music education person. I was in the performance division, but they allowed me to teach the brass pedagogy classes because none of the music educated people wanted to do it. Yeah. Uh, Nick Perini taught theory at Capitol all those years he was turning out, out those magnificent horn players. He was a freshman theory teacher. Mm -hmm. So you have to have if you want to stay in the brass world, you have to do the low brass. If you're a euphonium player, you've got to have some facility on trombone and some facility on tuba, because that's probably what the studio will be. Or you have to be a theory minor or a music history minor, which means you could teach music appreciation courses. Or a conductor. Times. <laughs> or a conductor. Yeah, or a conductor. Yeah, conductor. So anyway... Um, you know, it's always like uh, to the euphonium players, what's plan B? Plan A is play the euphonium as well as I can. What's plan B? Well, I, I always say, I was taught at the RNCM that, that, that most successful independent artists have three streams of income, three main things that they're doing. And so if you don't have a full-time gig, you should have, you should have, because if you have two, and you lose one of them, you've just cut your income by half. Yeah. You know, you now have half. Now, if you have three solid sources of income and you lose one of them, then you still have two thirds of your income and you can float for a while until you figure things out. But it was always that you have, you have three. So, so euphonium playing in some form, maybe one of those, um, if you don't have a solid, you know, and then, then maybe private lesson teaching, 
or, uh, you know, so I've, I've always tried to do things as I've, I've always tried to see where there's a hole where there's something that hasn't been done and go there. So, so now there's a children's book about brass band and there wasn't one before that. And that's doing quite well. So it's like, I find things that haven't been done. So I, I, cause I think if you're going to be a, a professional euphonium player, you have to have those different things that you're doing. You have to fit them in, in some, in some form. Yeah. That's, I think that's a, a great point. And COVID destroyed all of that. <laughs> well, yeah. I don't think it did necessarily because, it, because it I was teaching, through. I was, I was teaching, I've been teaching kids. I have, I have several students in out in California. I've, I've taught at the university of Sydney last year. Well, um, right. But I'm saying like, because two, why not? It's all online now. Right. But two of my three streams got cut out because of COVID, you know, that's, that's the exact scenario you were talking about. You know, if it weren't for my private lessons, all three of my streams would have been cut out. You yeah. Know? So I was just, I think we were just in opposite in up op- because I was, I had a completely open schedule because I just left Rowan and I was like, well, what do I do? And so I just, some people started contacting me and they were saying like, we're all online now. Um, so why can't I take lessons from you from Malaysia? Right. Right. Yeah, <laughs> so, okay. Why not? Yeah. <laughs> Let's do it. So, so one of the things that we do on our podcast, Paul, is we end it with a question of the week or a question of the episode. And, and Aaron has got a question for us, I think. Okay. Yeah. Let me just change our view really quick. Future Aaron edit that part out. Okay, so <laughs> question today, and also I keep in mind uh, our guests as well as our hosts. This I, I always ask for favorites, but it doesn't necessarily need to be a definite favorite. It can just be you know one that comes to the top of your mind. What is one of your favorite venues that you've ever played in? I'll start. My favorite, and correct me if I'm wrong here, uh, Tony. You might know better than I do, or Amy. Um, when when Naba was at Grand Rapids, it was at the DeVos Center. I think I think that was the name I, of the performance center. Sounds familiar. Yeah. Um, that's the first <clears throat> Google image that pops up when I go Naba Grand Rapids. So we'll go with that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that hall. I love that hall. I'm very glad. I'm very glad that it's closer to Florida now. But that hall was great. <laughs> let's uh, let's start with Dr. Drossi on this because I'm okay. sure there's a ton of halls uh, that you played. Give you one in England and one in the states. Um, we played as a guest band at the British Open, a non-competing band, um, in Birmingham in Symphony Hall. And that, to me, <clears throat> aesthetically and acoustically, is the finest hall I've ever been in. Uh, I, you just hear everything. What, what you hear in one seat is what you hear on the other side of the stage or other side of the auditorium. Just a very comfortable place to play. The band could hear themselves play. And they did... Uh, the day after the British Open, they did a, a marathon concert. They started like at noon and went till, I think, seven o'clock in the evening with no breaks, just one band right after the other. And I sat through that whole thing and was just entranced because I heard very good bands, but I heard them in a very good setting. Um, the other side of that, uh, favorite places to play, uh, the Brass Band of Columbus has played at the Midwest Clinic in Chicago three different times when I directed. And these were ballrooms or 
hotel, you know, and there was not symphony acoustics, but for the um, knowledge of the people in the audience, these are the who's who of the band world in one place at one time coming to hear your group. Um, I, I'm a member, I was a member um, of the American Bandmasters Association. That's for concert band directors. And um, two of the uh, two of my mentors at Ohio State, Jack Evans, trombone and euphonium, and Don McGinnis, concert band, were influential members of ABA. And they said, Paul, we'd like to get you into ABA, but you don't qualify because you don't have a concert band. Well, the brass band of Columbus played at a Midwest, and I got my invitation. Nice. All of ABA was there. <laughs> Wow. So acoustically, it wasn't the greatest, but if you're trying to uh, make points with a very sophisticated audience <laughs> and make contacts, make contacts for future concerts, uh, guest, guest soloists. Um, we've had Brian Bowman. Um, we do a God and Country series uh, with the Brass Band of Columbus and a touring Salvation Army band. And one year after we'd had Ron Holtz's Asbury College Band and the New York Staff Band and uh, the New England Band, one year they said, we can't find a touring Salvation Army Band that's going to be near Columbus at the time we want to do our concert. How about a soloist? And I said, no, find a band. And they said, I think we can get Phil Smith. I said, we'll take him. <laughs> <laughs> So, I mean, that's how we got Phil Smith. We had the Childs Brothers. We, we, we've had some really named people coming solo with the band because of contacts made either at the Midwest Clinic or by me going to England and visiting bands, which I did. So, yeah. Wow. Amy, what about you? You've, I'm sure you've got some good halls that you played in. <laughs> Um, I had to look it up to remember what it was called. Um, but my, my favorite place that I played, uh, was, uh, Lan uh, Cost Priory, um, in the UK. Um, and I remember, um, that was with Besses of the Barn. Um, and it's a, it's a gorgeous, uh, it's a gorgeous, like 12th century Priory. And I remember we went in and, um, a lot of the places in ruins at this point, um, uh, darn Henry the eighth. Um, but, uh, but so we went in to change because in the UK you have your walking outs and you, you have the, the, the outfit that you show up in and then you have to change before the gig, which I, we don't have horse-drawn carriages. We don't need to protect our, our stage clothes from the mud of the horses and, and everything. I don't know why we have to do that anymore, but regardless, we, we have to change. So um, it built into the contract was that the women needed a separate uh, dressing area. And so there were just a few of us. So we had a smaller room, but it was still the size of like a bedroom. Um, and so we're in there. It, it, it was a weird space because it didn't have like necessarily like a door. It had like a room divider. Um, and so, you know, we changed and we, we um, came out and we said, what room was that that we were just changing in and the guide said oh that's the king's fireplace and we we're like what <laughs> wait, wait like the so many different questions came came to my like that was that was the largest fireplace i've ever seen 
Um, and and which king are we talking about here? <laughs> um, so I think it was Edward. I looked it up because I think um that uh Edward the first is that Edward the first made several vis- visits to the priory during his reign, um, with Queen Eleanor. Um, so so that was probably King, that was probably Edward the first's fireplace. Um, and you know, the history that that place had seen, um, was just really cool. Cause you don't get that as an American all that much. I mean, I lived in Philly for a while and that was about as close as you can, as close as you can get, but to know that this place has been up since the 1100s, um, and you're playing there now was <laughs> really, cool. was really pretty cool. So that was one of my, that was one of my favorite venues that I played at. Yeah. My, I don't have anything that's really spectacular like that. Um, you know, may, maybe this is, this is a weird one, but when I was in college, uh, the Wynn Ensemble went to a, a national CBDNA convention and we played at University of Georgia that they just opened their new hall, uh, band hall there. And we played in that. And that one acoustically was, was really, really good to play in. So it'll be over to you, Aaron, now. You get to clean up. Well, I started it, so I've already. Oh, you started. Oh, the, yeah, oh, the Grand Rapids one. Yeah, though that Georgia Hall is a nice hall, though. I would agree. I, I like that room a lot. Yeah, I, I, you know, when I was in high school, I played in the Kennedy Center. You know, with the, the youth orchestra that I was in, that was that was pretty cool. I don't know acoustically if it stands up against, you know, the great halls of the world, but it was a, you know, it was a cool place to play. Um, still haven't made it back there yet. <laughs> Um, Tony, so, what year? What year did you play there? Because my son played uh, there at Kennedy Center. Uh, um, it would have been 1989. Ni- 1989. Who was your conductor? Uh, Emerson Head. Okay, no, he had another conductor, but same venue, I think. And yeah, yeah. So you know, so <clears throat> I mean, it was it was fun to play there. You know. There was, there was a lot of walking in that place. It's a big, it was a big building for a high schooler. Um, but it was really cool to play on the same stage that the National Symphony played on and, you know, the, this big monument of, a, of an art center. Um, you know, so. All right. Well, uh, I'd like to thank Dr. Drosty for joining us for this, uh, for this episode. This was, we're going to get two big full episodes out of this, which is going to be great. Um, you know, so thanks for, for coming in and chatting with us and and telling us all about the things that you talked about. It was very, very awesome. Appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Thank you.